friends, and welcome to the Strengthening the Soul of Your Leadership podcast. I am Ruth Haley Barton, and I'm your host today. And we are in the uh, final stages of season 16 of our podcast on transforming leadership, managing anxiety within our communities. And actually, it might be even more accurate to say managing anxiety within ourselves and in our communities, because that's where we start. We start with noticing anxiety within ourselves and learning how to manage anxiety within ourselves first, and then noticing it in the systems that we're a part of and learning how to diffuse anxiety within those systems. So you may remember, it was a long time ago now, but you may remember that I started out describing myself as a mother bear, feeling protective of pastors and leaders during this uniquely challenging season. And I felt that bringing some perspectives and conversations and information on family systems theory would be particularly helpful because we needed something more than just paying attention to our spirituality, but there were some psychological aspects that were important for our health and for our resilience during this time. And I have enjoyed immensely sharing this season with Steve Cuss, the author of Managing Leadership Anxiety, Yours and Theirs. And in fact, I feel like I've been learning and exploring right along with you. But now the mother bear in me is back and she wants to make sure that we fully understand what we've been given as a resource and how to be really clear about taking some beginning steps out of all that we've learned. Uh, We wanna take some steps in functioning in some brave new ways through this systems understanding functioning in ways that can lead towards health and wholeness for ourselves and for our communities. And so I thought it might be helpful right now just to do a bit of a recap on some of the key definitions and also Bowen's eight concepts, and then we're going to actually add the ninth concept in this final episode. So let's remember that systems theory has to do with what happens when people are together over time. They become a system that starts to function in certain predictable ways. So systems theory is the study of how anxiety moves through and moves around in these systems. And also what we can do to manage ourselves in these systems and to bring health and wholeness as we get healthier. So uh, anxiety is a really important concept in the systems theory. And it's Anxiety in general, but also because of our context, we're also talking about leadership anxiety. So anxiety in general and leadership anxiety in particular is generated by the false self, which we talk about a lot here in the Transforming Center, and so that should not be new language. But now I'm connecting the language with systems and with uh, the idea of anxiety. So leadership, leadership anxiety in particular is generated by the false self, which developed around false beliefs. And so when we are under pressure, when we're feeling threatened, when we are anxious, as leaders, really for anyone, but as leaders in particular, because that's our focus, when those things are happening, pressure, feeling threatened, anxious, we're depending on the false self to find our solutions. What is the false self? Our false self is made up of our own human programs for safety and security, for affection and approval, for power and control, for managing outcomes in our lives. We are depending on our own human programs versus depending on God. And this is where there's a powerful integration between our psychology and our spirituality. Because the false self is always going to rely on old patterns that developed 
in, in family of origin and in some cases within culture, depending on what our people group experienced in the culture. But they, the, the false self emerges from very early experiences, and most of them are unconscious until God, by God's grace, makes them conscious so that we can begin to deal with them in a spiritual way and in a much more awake and alert way. So Steve, in his book, he actually identifies a process for managing anxiety, and I want to just offer that again because I felt like after all that we said, these four little moves are really clarifying. So here's the process of managing anxiety, and especially leadership anxiety. First of all, you pay attention and you notice how it manifests itself in your body. And for many of us, if not all of us, anxiety is going to manifest first in our bodies as a bodily visceral experience. So first of all, you, you learn how to pay attention and how to notice how the anxiety is manifested in your body. It might be tightness in your chest. It could be tears behind your eyes. It could be a fluttering stomach. It could be uh, the way in which you move to hold your body really tight in a defensive posture. But pay attention to how it manifests in your body. That's the first step is to notice it. It's uncomfortable, but you need to notice. And then secondly, you can make a movement towards diagnosing its source and actually naming what the source might be and move from the general to being as specific as you possibly can. Um, and you can do this internally, even when you're, when you're in meetings, you know, take a breath or that, that Viktor Frankl quote that between stimulus and response, there is a space. Give yourself some space, even if it's just 60 seconds to diagnose the source and to name it and to get as specific as you can about it. And the beauty of this is that it moves you fairly easily and naturally towards the third step of managing anxiety, which is that just naming it and being present to it helps to de-escalate its power. And you may remember that we introduced welcoming prayer as a way in which you can actually do another step to de-escalate the power of it, and that is by welcoming the Holy Spirit into that experience and inviting the Holy Spirit, consenting to the Holy Spirit to do the Spirit's work in your life. So de-escalating its power is the third movement. And then in the fourth movement, you can then begin to manage it, that in that space between stimulus and response, once you know what the source of it is, then you can make a determination to behave differently than the ways that you usually function. And you can certainly make the choice not to function out of your anxiety, but to function out of a deeper place of trust in God. So that's how we manage anxiety. And the reason that I recap that right now is because the best thing we can do in any system that we're a part of as leaders is to manage our own anxiety while at the same time being able to notice and diagnose and diffuse anxiety within the system. So that's our first step right there. We are going to manage anxiety as part of our leadership, as part of healthy leadership. That's the first thing I wanted to offer. Then I think it might be helpful for us to recap the eight concepts. I did that with you in my first episode, Flying Solo, with you. But I have to tell you that even though I've studied this for many, many years and I've listened to all these episodes multiple times, it is still helpful to me to just n hear the eight concepts again so that I can notice them. And then I want to move to talk a little bit about differentiation of self as another really important aspect of managing ourselves and managing anxiety. And then we're going to add the ninth concept 
um, as I've mentioned, and talk about spiritual resources that are available to support us in this process. So let's recap the eight concepts. Just hang with me here. I think you'll appreciate this. That the first concept is differentiation of self. The idea of differentiation of self places people on a spectrum according to the degree of fusion or differentiation they have between their emotional and their intellectual functioning. In fact, I didn't say this in my first episode, but one of the ways that you notice whether or not someone is differentiated is whether or not they can actually tell the difference between their emotion and their intellect. And I I don't think we said that anywhere in this season, but even to be able to distinguish the difference between the emotions that you're feeling and the thoughts that you're that you're having and what i mean by that is principles not just intellectual thoughts but the difference between your emotional state and the emotion that's going around in the system and your own principles and your commitment to functioning out of your own principles that is by definition what differentiation of self is no one is ever perfectly differentiated this side of heaven but we can move up and down the scale At higher levels of differentiation, there's more individuality uh, and the togetherness needs are less intense. There is this ability to remain a self while staying in emotional contact with the group. There is the ability to enhance one's own welfare, you know, to, to kind of be for yourself in the best way possible, to care for yourself in the best way possible. But, and this is a big but, without impinging on the welfare of others. So to care for yourself while at the same time you are caring for others and you're not impinging on their wel- their welfare. At higher levels of differentiation, there's this ability to take responsibility for oneself and one's functioning rather than blaming it on other people. And the function is on your own functioning. It's not on how you are blaming other people in the group. And so, you know, differentiation actually, in my opinion, is the most key concept in Bowen theory. A well-differentiated person can function uh, well intellectually and think clearly separately from the emotional system of the group that they're in. And this capacity to differentiate feeling and thinking is really important um, as we think about differentiation. A better differentiated person has a greater capacity to be a self and to define a self and to stand for their own principles while staying in contact with others. Um, We talked about the second concept, which is triangles, that a three-person configuration is the basic building block of any emotional system. Triangle is is stable in that sense. And when, inc- in, when anxiety increases, a two-person system, like say a mother and a father, a husband and a wife, when anxiety increases, a two-person system immediately involves a third person, which is unhealthy, you know, which is not healthy. They're doing that because they don't know how to manage their anxiety between the two of them. We also talked about the fact that our own Christian teachings really support the health of being able to deal directly with people versus triangling and that triangling is actually what's referred to in Matthew 18 where it says when you when someone offends you if you have something against another person you go to them first alone and directly because that is the healthiest thing to do it's only when we're anxious that we feel like we have to pull in a third party and so triangles are a very important concept because we're all in triangles all the time that's not not bad that's just a neutral truth triangling or triangulation though is when we are in an unhealthy way pulling in that third person and so that takes us to the third concept which is the nuclear family emotional process 
and that is describing and learning how to notice the patterns of emotional functioning in a single generation. So that's your family right now. Not your family of origin, but your family, the single generation that is your family. And then the nuclear family emotional process, when we're able to see that, we can see how the togetherness forces, the, the forces towards fusion within the family are played out through emotional distancing, marital conflict, dysfunction in one spouse, projection of problems onto a child, secret keeping, all of those things. Steve actually opens his book with the whole idea of secret keeping and how secrets are a way of managing anxiety. You know, the mom's lying in the bed and doesn't know she has cancer because the family does, you know, that's the, the way the family manages their anxieties. Um, so secret keeping is always very destructive in a family emotional process. And the ability to notice that and name it and call it out and then do something different is powerful. Then the family projection process, um, this is the process by which any sort of undifferentiation between parents can impair one or more of the children by the way that child gets pulled into the father-mother-child triangle. And almost every family has one child who was more triangle than the others. And what that means is that they struggle more to function in all sorts of different ways. That's a really interesting thing about Bowen theory is that he started by working with people who had schizophrenia, families who had one member who were schizophrenic. And, you know, you think, well, then we're going to focus on the problem person. That's the person who has schizophrenia. But that, but, but Bowen did something completely different than that. He assumed that there was something about the system that produced this. And so rather than focusing on the identified patient, he actually focused on the system itself, which then once the family started to become healthier, then the person who had, who was the identified patient starts to have a higher level of functioning. And again, these are such different ways of thinking that I, I that's why I have to go over this again is because most of us are not accustomed to thinking this way. That's why Bowen theory, family systems theory, was so revolutionary. And it is revolutionary. It's transformative, actually, when we start to look at things this way. So that's the fourth one, the, the family projection process. And that is how someone in the family becomes an identified patient and gets drawn into the parental triangle. Number five, the multi-generational transmission process. And this is where we talked about genograms. And this is really a good way to wrap it up because I can touch some of the places that we discussed in our season. And so the multi-generational transmission process is simply looking at how anxiety and all of that has been passed down. Um, and these become patterns that are multi-generational. And you can actually look back to previous generations, the grandparents and the great-grandparents, and you can look and your, you know, the siblings and all of that. And you can begin to see that there are certain kinds of patterns, certain ways of dealing with anxiety that just got passed down without anyone even knowing it. So um, secret keeping is one of those. You know, many families have multi-generational patterns of keeping secrets, divorces, affairs, miscarriages, mental illness. Those are all the categories of secrets that families love to keep. Uh, suicides, how someone died, or, you know, sometimes when you do your genogram work, you'll find out that there was a child that was born out of wedlock and no one ever told anyone, you know, things like that. So multi-generational transmission process just helps you to observe how patterns have been established and lived out throughout multiple generations. And systems theory also tells us that we can follow the line of children who emerged and we can see, you know, who was most impaired at these lower levels of differentiation, people who really, you know, people in the family who struggled 
and we can see a remarkable consistency of functioning that produced children who were not able to function as well as perhaps others in the system. So at lower levels, at lower levels of functioning, people struggle to really define a self and to live according to their principles. They often stay more highly dependent, more emotionally volatile. At higher levels of differentiation, then we see more highly functioning people. So that's number five, multi-generational transmission process. Then number six is sibling position and the idea that important personality characteristics go along with every sibling position and that the sibling position that we had in our families is perhaps more determinative about our personalities than almost anything else. And also the fact that relationships with our siblings are really important because our siblings are those that we will know and be connected with the longest here on this earth. So, you know, our siblings are the first ones we knew when we were born outside of our parents, but then our parents will pass from the scene and we will still be in relationship with our siblings. And so, I, you know, my own personal belief is that, that our sibling relationships are really worth the effort of trying to see them become healthy and whole and really working on them because those are the longest standing relationships that we will have as humans on the earth. So sibling position number six. Number seven is emotional cutoff. This one's really important because sometimes if it wasn't named as a, as a concept, we might confuse differentiation with emotional cutoff. But number seven actually states that separating and running away or desire or denying the importance of the parental family or the family of origin, um, that's emotional cutoff. It's not differentiation. Differentiation by definition means that we define a self while staying connected. You're not defining a self if you're running away and emotionally cut off and denying the importance of your family. That's something else that's unhealthy. Differentiation is all about staying in contact while you're differentiating. So one of the things that the genogram might show you is where there's been emotional cutoff. And there's actually a symbol for that. Two backslashes in the genogram indicate that there's been emotional cutoff or estrangement in the family. And the idea with Bowen theory is that the more the nuclear family maintains viable emotional contact with the past generations, this is very interesting, the more orderly and asymptomatic the life process is in both generations. And then finally, number eight um, is societal emotional process or societal regression. And this is another very significant part of Bowen theory and family systems theory. And that is that the emotional problems in society are similar to the emotional problems in the family. And that, and that is that society responds to increasing chronic anxiety with emotionally determined decisions to allay that anxiety, but they do it on the basis of of whatever level of differentiation or not they experienced within their family. And efforts to relieve the symptoms when we don't deal with the underlying causes only increase the problem and keep the cycle repeating, which is why it's so important to really go back and learn what we can about our families of origin so that we can um, increase our own differentiation and increase our own level of functioning and we can bring that to our society. And I think right now in our society, many of us would say that watching what's happening right now is is de definitely by definition societal regression, that we are regressing right now in society and we are regressing to violence and inflammatory rhetoric and fighting on levels that in some ways, <laughs> are at the level of children. What we see today, you know, you just see, can see that people are functioning at about the level of a 10-year-old. And that's why we're having many of the problems that we're having. So 
I really hope that's helpful. I find it helpful to me. I could read those once a week just to keep me clear on what actually I'm doing in trying to grow as a person and trying to be a healthy leader that fosters health in the situations that I'm a part of. Well, friends, I know that was a lot. And so I'd like to give us a minute, maybe just 30 seconds even, for us to reflect on these eight concepts and to just don't feel like you have to remember them all, but rather to, to grab the one that you know God is speaking to you about. Differentiation of self, triangles, nuclear family emotional process, family projection process that's multi-generational. Your sibling position, does that spark anything in you? Um, the whole idea of emotional cutoff as being different than differentiation. What's happening in our society right now as societal regression. Is there any one of those concepts that you say, man, I, I know that if I could lean more into that one, if I could learn a little bit more, if, if the Lord would reveal a little bit more to me, that would really help my functioning. And I want to pay attention to that um, as I come out of this series. Let's just take a moment to give God a chance to impress that upon our hearts and for you to claim it as something that God's saying to you. So if you're like me, you might be very, very drawn to this idea of differentiation of self because it's so key and it's so nuanced in this theory. And I wanted to give us just a few ways of moving into long-term change around this work of self-differentiation. In other words, how can we bring long-term consistent effort to this area of differentiation of self because a leader's differentiation of self is going to be the most important thing that they can do to actually diffuse anxiety in the system. If a leader can stay differentiated versus getting all caught up in the undifferentiated globiness of the anxiety in the, in the system, then they will just by their own differentiation bring some peace to the anxiety that's moving around in the system. So here's a few things. And this is from my own training um, in systems theory with Richard Blackburn. Um, first of all, continue to focus on yourself, on your own functioning and not on other people. Just don't even look at other people right now. Just focus on your own self and your own functioning and your own ability to distinguish between emotion and thought and principles, your own ability to take a stand 
when that's necessary and in a non-anxious way, not in a fighting sort of way, but just in a non-anxious way, just to define yourself and to say, this is where I stand, to not try to coerce or manipulate anybody else, but just to keep saying, this is where I stand. This is who I am. These are the principles that I'm allowing to govern my own life. That is incredible. If that was the only thing that you did was to focus on yourself, your own level of functioning and stop blaming other people, that would be so much. That would be you know, that would be almost everything, but we'll keep going. Then develop an awareness of emotional process dynamics. And we talked about this in this season. We talked about this as a tool, as one of the most powerful tools, actually, of leadership and non-anxious leadership is to be able to be aware of the emotional process versus the content, to not just get distracted by the content, but to pay attention to the emotional process. What's happening emotionally in this group? Who is speaking and who's not? Who's gone quiet? Who's started to sort of be blustery and force their way on the whole group? Where is the anxiety? What's generating it? Who's bringing it? Where is it landing? Those are the kinds of awarenesses that Steve talked to us about in terms of being able to be aware of emotional process and not just the content. So that's the second thing. Develop this ability to be aware of emotional process dynamics versus getting caught up in just the content. The third one, and I already alluded to this in number A, is to learn how to non-anxiously define a self. And that is to take an I position. Uh, In my training, we used to call this the here I stand position. And so, you know, an example came to me and that would be Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., he led in a time of great anxiety and great unrest around racial justice. And in a very non-anxious way, he, he rarely let himself get pushed into an anxious presence or an angry presence or a combative presence, but he just continued to non-anxiously define himself and the principles he was living by, the principles he felt he knew from God, that all men and women and children are created equal and that we weren't living that out, especially in the church and in our country. And he just continued to take these powerful I positions, his I have a dream speech. That was a here I stand moment for Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. because he said, I have a dream. I can see the dream and I want to live that dream and I'm going to give my life for that dream. And because he was willing to non-anxiously define himself and to do it through nonviolence, um, he was able to catalyze in ways that others had not been able to do up to that point. So the ability to non-anxiously define yourself and to take the I position with an emphasis on non-anxious. All right, don't get all blustery with it. Don't get all violent with it. Don't get all anxious with it, but just define yourself and take an I position in a very calm way. That will help. While you're doing that, here's the challenge. Stay connected with others. Learn how to take the I position while also staying connected with others. So even after uncomfortable moments when you've defined yourself and you know you've made other people uncomfortable, you reach out after the meeting. Go ahead and reach out in a loving way and stay connected. Hey, just wondering how you're feeling after that meeting. Take time to listen. Don't let it push you off your own position, except, you know, if there's a mutual influencing thing that's supposed to take place there. Don't get caught up in, in the emotion, but stay connected with other people meaningfully while you're defining a self. Regulate, learn how to regulate your own reactivity. We already talked about that early in this episode, those four movements that help us to regulate our own reactivity, to welcome the spirit in, to do the work when we do recognize our own reactivity, to utilize that space between stimulus and response really effectively to help you to do what you most want to do, your best self, to bring your best self response in that moment. Increase your capacity for emotional emotional neutrality, to calm your emotional responses and to 
stay in a more neutral position, even when things are becoming anxious in the system. Try to take a step back, not in terms of avoidance or, or emotional distance, but try to not take sides. Try to stay neutral for a bit and just keep listening, and that will help everyone. And then just know and be convinced that the effort that you're making to function in a more well-differentiated way can result in other family members raising their own level of functioning. And I could just get a little weepy about this because the thought that we could impact these people that we love, our own family members, by defining a self, sometimes we feel like, man, if I differentiate myself, that's not going to be a very loving thing to do. And I think we just don't have a good definition of what love is in this kind of a moment because for us to, in all these ways, in a non-anxious way, in a loving way, while staying connected to define a self, that just may free up some of your other family members to do the same thing, which will be so good for them. Then they'll be becoming healthier too, and you will have done the most loving thing that you could ever do for them. You're not helping them by letting them stay where they are. Um, You're not helping yourself by staying where you are. And you don't have to do anything. You just have to differentiate yourself and know deep in the bottom of your being that this can also result in the invitation for other family members to raise their own level of functioning. And I think that's extremely hopeful. And I also think it's deeply loving. So may God give us the ability to do that. Well, friends, I feel like we have come to the end of a long and in some ways challenging, but also a beautiful human journey. And as we do that, I want to bring us back around to Bowen's ninth concept. Those of you who know systems theory know that Bowen was developing and working on a ninth concept that had to do with spirituality, but he passed away before he had a chance to fully develop it. And I don't want to be grandiose at all, but I do think that some of us who are working in the arena of systems theory and integrating systems theory with spirituality like we're doing here, that in some ways we are trying to carry the torch. We are trying to do the work that Bowen didn't have a chance to do because God took him home when God chose to take him home. And so I want to just talk a little bit about this ninth concept because Murray Bowen, who who really is the father, the founder of systems theory, and then, of course, Edward Friedman, Edwin Friedman carried it on, and now others are carrying it on as well, Roberta Gilbert, Robert Creech, and of course, Steve, that Bowen was working on this concept that would acknowledge the supernatural phenomenon as it has to do with the growth that we're trying to experience here. Uh, Bowen was very disciplined in his thinking as he distinguished between science and philosophy, or he, he might say subjectivity. For him, scientific study was the study of natural phenomenon, and you could study it and get facts that are observable and provable. So he would distinguish science from philosophy because philosophy studies belief and the ways that we think as humans. And Bowen also identified subjectivity as a major barrier in some of these studies, so I know he shied away from it. I think that was the work he was trying to do was to come to terms with it himself. So when he talked about the supernatural, he still felt it was essential to build on proven and provable facts um, and to move beyond just mere subjectivity. But he did believe that beliefs have their function and that a focus on the function of beliefs can deal with this problem of subjectivity. And what I mean by that is just going on our feelings versus having any sort of facts to actually build on. 
So he believed that beliefs may or may not be factual in the way he defines it, observable and provable, but that the fact that people believe their beliefs could have a favorable effect on their psychological and physiological functioning. Isn't that something? So our beliefs really matter, and that was something we talked about. Steve talked about this powerfully when he uh, named false beliefs as being at the core of our false identities, our false functioning, the false self is crafted around false beliefs. So what we believe really does matter. And so beliefs do have enormous force in how they can support the journey that we're on to greater health and wholeness and higher levels of functioning. So Bowen said in 1965 that I do believe in the principle of believing in God. He goes, does that make sense? It does to me. I believe in the usefulness of the concept of God without which human beings would be less than who we are. Where would we be without God? God is man's continuity. Better said, God is continuity for the human individual. And I'm changing his gen- his language was not gender neutral. And so I'm changing it for our times today. But um, Bowen had a belief in God. He just hadn't had the chance to do the work of integrating psychology and spirituality. So I want to rely on some of the strength of what we do here in the Transforming Center and bring a little bit of spirituality to this as we conclude. First of all, I want to name the fact that we have a great ally and advocate and counselor and friend in this work. When Jesus went home to heaven after his earthly journey here, he prayed to the Father that the Father would give him the Holy Spirit. And he promised the disciples, he said, when I go, it'll be good for you because the Holy Spirit will come. And the Holy Spirit will be able to be here with you, guiding you in all of the moments where you have important and significant decisions to make. And so we need to realize that we do have the presence of the Holy Spirit as we take this journey. We have the active presence of Jesus mediated through the Holy Spirit to help us to grow up in all ways into him who is our head. And so I want to locate what we're doing here within the realm of the help of the Holy Spirit. And we are trying to grow up. You know, Ephesians 4 has this fantastic phrase that we are to grow up in every way unto him who is our head. And so we're talking about growing up here. We're talking about becoming adults. We're talking about taking responsibility for ourselves and not blaming anything on anybody else, but taking responsibility. And this is a very spiritual work. And the Holy Spirit is here to help us with that. And that's why the welcoming prayer, I think, is such an important spiritual resource for us in this work. In that moment between stimulus and response, in that moment when we feel our anxieties, when we feel our stuckness, when we feel our normal responses rising up within us almost in a visceral way, Any way that you can welcome the Holy Spirit into that moment and open yourself and consent to the work of the Holy Spirit to bring out something good and different and new in you, Um, that is a spiritual moment. And you want the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit promises to be with us in moments like this. So the presence of the Holy Spirit, finding ways to welcome the Holy Spirit into these moments when we're, you know, experiencing new revelations about our levels of functioning. And that's where the practices of, um, you know, of solitude and silence come in because we have the moments when we recognize that we're all riled up and full of anxiety and we want to do something different. We open to the spirit, but also in our solitude and silence, I would suggest that as we are doing this work, that we add this systems theory understanding 
to our times of self-reflection and self-examination and solitude and silence. We teach here in the Transforming Center the practice of examen in a very general way. Psalm 139 talks about, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. But how about if we got a little bit more specific? And when we pray that prayer and when we enter into solitude and silence, we say to God, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. Show me where I was anxious and how I worked with my anxiety. Did I bring more anxiety versus bringing a calming presence? Where was I stuck in my old family of origin patterns, those old ways of managing anxiety? Where was I working with human programs for happiness and safety and security and survival and approval and affection and power and control and trying to control outcomes? Where was I relying on my false self versus being willing to abandon myself to you, oh God? And could you show me what it would look like for me to do something different in this moment? And I also want to draw attention back to the issue of second order change, which we talked about. You know, first order change is in some ways trying to work within the system as it is doing the same things you've always done and hoping for a new solution. And sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. And when it doesn't and when it consistently doesn't, when we are consistently stuck in recurring patterns, that's the moment. And I remember, you know, Steve calling this um, a chainsaw, that when old patterns of trying to fix things aren't working, that we open up to God and we say, what would be the thing that I could do that's really, really different than what I usually do? And something that's redemptive, you know, for myself, it might feel uncomfortable, but something that is redemptive for myself and for others where I'm not any, any longer just banging against my, banging my head against the wall, doing all the same things, hoping for a different result. I think that the idea of second order change is a real gift from this season. And I want to put it here in a spiritual context to say, let the Holy Spirit guide you as you consider second order change. I also perhaps want to highlight the value of spiritual community around these things. Because if you're journeying in a spiritual community where people are talking about these things, they're aware of these concepts, they're trying to bring change that's both psychologically sound along with their spirituality, your spiritual community could be a place where you do some processing of these things. You know, there were several places where we talked about the importance of a little safe group. And it doesn't have to be a big group. It could just be three, three more people. In fact, I actually think four people or five is probably the max for trying to work on these things because you want there to be a lot of space for each person to process their family of origin stuff and where this stuff came from. And you're just going to get tired if, you have, if you're all listening to too many people. So when I was doing my own training, it was groups of four very, very intimate. And we, we did our genogram work in those groups of four. We actually prepared our genograms. We brought them. We talked about them and processed them, let people ask questions. Um, that was very, very powerful. And so you want to do that with people who are safe for you, people who you don't mind knowing some of the very intimate things about your family and who will keep confidentiality. But the role of community could be very significant. The other role that community can play, and we see this as being a, a really strong component of what we do in transforming community, is that you have a group of people to practice with. That when you're deciding to change your behaviors, rather than, tr than trying it out for the first time with your family of origin who may or may not know what to do, and for them there's going to be probably a very strong reaction. No, change back. And if you don't change back, these are the consequences. I mean, that's the very nature of how systems deal with anxiety. One person starts to change, the system gets anxious, and the system says to the person who's changing, no, change back. And if you don't, we're going to 
put you out. You know, we're going to, these are going to be your consequences. Well, that's, that's a rough road right there. What about having a safe community where you can try out some new behaviors? And so we give people the chance to do this in transforming community, not quite so connected with family systems theory, but actually we're offering new ways of functioning and saying, hey, practice here where the stakes are not so high, where you don't have all the family of origin baggage. Uh, Do some practicing here. And then when you get a little bit stronger in these new behaviors, then you can take them back into your family of origin. So I didn't want us to think that this is just all going to take place by ourselves through thinking really hard trying really hard. We need places to talk and process and practice with each other. So those are some of the spiritual resources that we have. I think another resource that we have that comes straight out of our, you know, Christian Bibles is that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Some of you, when we talked about the genogram and things like that, some of you immediately wanted to start working on your genogram, but then others of you were like, man, I don't know what I'm going to uncover. I'm not sure I want to do that. I'm just, just let me leave things lie where they are right now. But this work is going to require that you believe that the truth will set you free and that the more you can know truth and live in the truth and function in the truth, the more free you will be. And also, again, that promise of the Holy Spirit, that the Holy Spirit will lead you into truth as you are able to bear it. And so we have this resource of the Holy Spirit that we can actually trust that the Spirit won't reveal things until we actually can bear it and until we have the support in place to be able to bear what we're starting to, you know, to unfold and to surface. So there's way more that could be said, and I'll, I'll tell you that I have a desire in me, in me to do another season on this subject someday where we can go further with some specific topics. But for now, we are going to trust God with what we have done in this season, and we're going to trust that it's enough for what we can all handle right now. And I'd like to close with one of our favorite prayers here in the Transforming Center, and you've heard it on this podcast before, but it is that prayer by Pastor Ted Loader from the book Gorillas of Grace let something essential happen to me. And what I love about this prayer is that it really does articulate my deepest desire and our deepest desire in in doing the hard work of bringing you this season. And that is that we weren't trying to offer you just an interesting, stimulating conversation. We wouldn't have done this much work on it if we were just trying to give you an interesting conversation. Ted Loader says something more than interesting or entertaining or thoughtful. We weren't even trying to do all of those things. We were trying to bring something that we feel might actually result in some of the needed, urgent changes that many of us are longing for in our lives. And so I want to close with this prayer. I want to give you some time to perhaps experience this prayer as your own, to touch your own desire for deep, essential change versus interesting conversations or entertainment, and to join in this prayer in your own soul if it feels right for you and if you're able to pray it and even if you're not able to pray it let it be a statement of your aspiration that you're willing to aspire to a essential change in your life and let these words just get you going in that direction so as we conclude go ahead and sit in a position that helps you to be alert in god's presence on cross legs hands feet sit with your back straight feet flat on the floor Open up your chest, um, open your hands, breathe deeply as a way of coming in touch with the Spirit of God, the active Spirit of God deep within. And let's hear this prayer together. Oh God, let something essential happen to me. 
something more than interesting or entertaining or thoughtful. Oh God, let something essential happen to me. Something awesome, something real. Speak to my condition, Lord, and change me somewhere inside where it matters. A change that will burn and tremble and heal and explode me into tears or laughter or love that throbs or screams or keeps a terrible cleansing silence and dares the dangerous deeds. Let something happen in me which is my real self, O God. O God, let something essential and joyful happen in me now, something like the blooming of hope and faith, like a grateful heart, like a surge of awareness of how precious each moment is, and that now, not next time, but now is the occasion to take off my shoes, to see every bush afire, to leap and whirl with neighbor, to gulp the air as sweet wine until I've drunk enough to dare to speak the tender word. Thank you. I love you. You're beautiful. Let's live forever, beginning now. And I am a fool for Christ's sake. Amen.